Last week in our scripture reading, we read a corollary passage. Uh, I'm sorry, it was two weeks ago. Last week we read the passage uh, just prior to our study today. And uh, we want to read um, again chapter 15, verses 1, all the way through verse 34. That's as far as we're going to get this morning in our study. And so I want to refresh, rather than doing a review later, I want to just read the passage to help us recall the last couple of weeks in our study. So we're bearing out 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 34. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and God's grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, And your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ also be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise... What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. 
Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Work through these two verses. And then I want to back up once we get that resolved and look into the whole force of the chapter as we get into really what it means for the Christian to believe in the resurrection. Not only in terms of the salvation and the message we preach and of the future, but of what we engage in today and are able to do today because of the resurrection. Not just because we have a future, but that because we have a future, we have some motivation for the present. So let's tear into verses 29 and 30. Paul asks a question. Remember, he is in the course of presenting a full defense of the resurrection. Not only of Jesus Christ, but of the church and of all men. That there is something more to man than just this body. There is something more to our existence than just this time. And the resurrection is ultimately the doctrine that leads us into that discussion of the immaterial part of man and the the quality in which we have been created, um, going back to the image bearingness of God, that He has given us something of His eternality in addition to many other things, that we have now uh, an existence that extends well beyond physical death. And that is true whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, all will be resurrected, the Bible says, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. And so he has given this full presentation of the resurrection. And this is just another one of the very brief um, evidences that he puts forward for its existence, for its reasonableness. Um, remember, he talked about the prophetic word. He talked about the preaching and the eyewitness, the historical record of Christ's resurrection. He goes through the aspect of the resurrection in terms of your salvation and its reference and its power over sin and death. That he's going to revisit at the end of this chapter. Um, he's gone through and talked about the future that it holds for us. Well, now he wants to come in and take an example. And Paul does this regularly in his preaching and teaching, um, enough so at least that we should expect it. He takes something not from Christianity, but he takes something from the culture around those that he is writing to. He is writing to the church in Corinth, and, and there on the peninsula where you find Corinth, there was a sect of people just a little bit north of the city itself, city proper in Corinth, that practiced something um, called baptizing the dead. And this is what they would do. And, and if you think that's weird, it's, it's not unusual. In fact, he could have called forth many examples. He could have called forth the Egyptian example of mummification and, and all that is involved in the burial rites of pharaohs and such. Um, he could have called forth many uh, examples where it is evident that men understand there's something more to us than just this life. There's something more to us than just this physical. And if we were to write this in this region with its history, we could go around and we can look at some of the other 
religions and point out that, well, they show evidence that they believe that there's something spiritual about man as well. Well, in this instance, we have recorded for us by Homer and other writers uh, this group that would take their dead and would baptize them in the sea before burial as a means for their spirit to go out and to set sail. And if you understand this region, you understand why that's important. This is sailor town. This is, this is a port city. Um, and the whole isthmus is, is surrounded around the idea of two ports, really. So they serve two different seas. And uh, you can understand how sailors would... The best place for your spirit is out there on the sea, because that's where we're all free. You know, is out there in the sea, because that's where sailors want to be, is out to sea. And so that was their practice. And Paul is going to draw upon something the Corinthians were very well aware of, that there's practices by others that evidence that even unbelievers, even people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who have never heard the name of Christ, even they recognize that there's an immaterial part of man. That there's something more to us than this. You may say, well, pastor, it doesn't, how do you get all of that out of this? Well, what you will find as you read through chapter 15, and, and many others have made a record of this and notice of this. This isn't original to me at all. Um, this is a, probably among 50 of the 200 and some positions on this passage. 50 of them would hold to this. And that is the reference in the personal pronouns used. How it goes from first and second person to third person. And throughout this, he's been talking about me, I, you, us, we. And he's used these personal pronouns. And he comes to these two verses and he switches them. Back to they. They, they, those, them. Here's what they do. He has just given us a great reference point for understanding um, the passing of a saint as being referenced to falling asleep. Here he's going to speak specifically of the dead with no idea, relationship to their uh, placing Christ that they are not dead, but rather sleeping, and that they are waiting for the resurrection of life. But those who die without Christ are truly dead, for what they are going to be raised to is the second death, eternal death. And so those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and die in this life are truly dead. But we find that they, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why are they baptized for the dead? What is the point? Why are they doing that? Look at the, out of your community, look out your window, and there goes them carrying off this corpse down there to baptize it. Why are they doing that? Why are they participating in that act? They even recognize that there's something more to man than just the body. And we can go around here, we can go down to the Pueblos and we can see in their spirit religion uh, what, all that they do for the dead to make sure that, that the, the spirit is taken care of properly. And I could use that as an example in our reference point in our culture and say even they recognize that there's something more to man than the body. And so they do weird things and they, and weird to us, not weird to them. Um, they do these rituals so that they can make sure that the spirit of that person is well taken care of. Well, 
Even that is a recognition that there is a spiritual side of man. It's misguided. It's not built on any real truth. But it's still at least a recognition that there is something more. So we can look even to the lost, even to those who have no contact with Christ. Um, and we can look at them and we can recognize this isn't just a Christian doctrine. This is an understanding that mankind has. And we can go to culture after culture after culture and we will find that all of them have reference points to something more about man than just the body. That there is something about us that, it, that means that we don't eat our dead. We bury them and we bury them with ritual and, and with purpose and, and that we see that there is something more about them, whether you believe in, in their spirits going off and going out there or there or, we, or you believe they turn into angels or you, or you uh, um, believe they become ghosts and walk around amongst us. Whatever it is your belief system is, why is it so prevalent everywhere? If this is just some weird Christian thing. No, Paul takes an example right there in Corinth of this community just to the north of them that participated in this ritualistic act of baptizing their dead in the sea to help their spirit go off into the happy fishing grounds. Then he quickly is going to convert right back to the first person pronouns. We and I in the very next verse, verse 30, goes right back to it. So for one verse, he goes into third person. He says, look at them. What about they? What are they doing? Those people. We're not amongst them. This is not a call for us to engage in some activity um, like this. It is not a, a uh, as I said, there's no historical record that, we, that I can find to attest uh, that this ever occurred. Um, there are those that do feel that it was practiced for some time, for, specifically for believers who were martyred before they could be baptized. In other words, you came to know Christ and uh, you were slain for that profession and never were baptized, never had a public statement. And some would contend that that did occur. Um, and I haven't historically been in that position and felt that that was a reasonable understanding of this passage. But the problem is, is that the Corinthians had never experienced any of that. That kind of persecution hadn't happened there yet. They hadn't been exposed to that idea yet. And there's no reference point for them. Yes, that might have been the case later on, but I can't find historical record of it other than modern people projecting it back there, trying to think up a reason why anyone would be baptized for the dead. The fact is, is that it's never been a practice in the church. Never. He's looking at a regional activity that the Corinthians would have been well aware of. Look out there. Why are they doing that? Just as much as we could, if he was writing to someone in Alexandria or Cairo and say, why did they do that? And he could be talking about embalming. Why do we engage ourselves in this activity? Why do we set apart, and that word is sanctify, why do we sanctify 
humanness in its death. If we are just an advanced animal and this is all there is, then why don't we just treat human bodies like we treat other bodies? Process them. No, we recognize there's something more. That there's a spiritual side to this, that there's something more substantial about man that requires us to address the eternal in us. And even the world, even they outside of Christianity have acknowledged this. This isn't just superstition. It is, it is humanity-wide because it's real. Whether we can see it or not is irrelevant. We know it's real. And there's still that sense within us that there's more to us than just this body. Than just these days in the flesh. And so, why are they doing it? Why are they concerned about the body? Why are non-Christians concerned about whether they call them ghosts or angels or spirits, whatever they want to call them? Why? Are they so careful in their cultural practices to guard that which doesn't really exist? Now, is this his strongest argument? No. Does he spend the most time on it? No, he spends the least amount of time on it. It's this one verse, and I really attach it to the next one because he wants, I want you to see how he switches it to himself, to we, himself, and the church. There's what they do. What about us? Why do we stand? Why do we live the way we live? Why do we take these great risks every day if there's no resurrection? Why are we engaging in this activity? Why do they do it and why do we do it? If there is no resurrection. Granted, it's a weaker argument than the others that he's already listed. And he's listed the historical element, the, the references, the Old Testament promises and the prophecies of scriptures. He's looked at the reasonableness and the necessity of Christ, uh, the preaching, the testimony. Um, he's looked at the the requirement to conquer sin and death for us to get victory over. He's looked at the future of what God has in store for us in heaven uh, in, with Christ uh, in His kingdom. And here, very quickly, and very quickly it is, He references, just look out there. What do they believe? What the world show that they evidence? Oh, they show that they believe there's something more. There is something after death. Death isn't the end. There is something else. Well, that's the answer to the questions of verse 29. The questions are, why do they do it? What are they doing? If there isn't something more after death to man, why? And the answer is, 
There has to be more. Otherwise, everything that man has invested in this idea, whether within Christianity or any other belief system, is pointless. Remember, vanity is the alternative to the resurrection. And so now we come to what I believe is the strength of the application of this information. Alright, so I have the historical basis. I have the biblical foundation of the prophecies. I have the understanding that without believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and lives forever, that I am still in sin, that I cannot be saved, that I have no life of eternity. Um, And I recognize that there is a future that he holds for me, that uh, because I trust in Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, there is a kingdom, I have a living Savior, I have a living King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will rule and reign with him. We'll be in that presence and wait for him to put all things under his feet, and that we are subject to him today by our own wills, and that one day all will be subject to him, whether they want to or not. All right, I got all that information. And even the world out there acknowledges that there is something more to man. So what does that mean today? What does it look like in the Christian's life to say, I really, really do believe in the resurrection? And I want to put in those really, reallys because um, it's easy for us to give lip service to the resurrection and say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Really? I mean, Really? Do you believe it? Well, if you really, really do believe it, it's going to look like something in your life. And that's what Paul wants to reference here in these verses. They stand in jeopardy, at great risk, endangering themselves every hour, he says. And the reason they're willing to do that is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason the Christian is willing to go out there and engage the world and do no harm to them and yet allow them to slaughter us by the thousands and tens of thousands in the name of Christ is because we believe in the resurrection. We will engage ourselves in the most dangerous, most risk-filled activities, not just for the thrill. Um, there's people out there that are thrill seekers. We're out there for a purpose as to win the loss to Christ with no regard for our own health, for our own well-being, for our own security. Why? Because our security is in Christ. If you really believe in the resurrection, then there's nothing of this world that will deter you from obeying God and to risk it all for others. That they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And the world may sit back and say, you were a fool to go down there and, and we hear of missionaries dying on the mission field and we hear of Christians being, being slaughtered in, in whole communities and whole churches being burned full of people. And we hear these and you say, what? would make them not fight back. Why don't they run away? Why? What is it that enables them to engage their own family members who hate them and have sworn to slaughter them? Why do they go back? Why do Christians go back to them with the message of Jesus Christ? Is because we really, really believe in the resurrection. 
And therefore, anything you do to this body is temporary. It's not that relevant. Slaughter me if you will. I have a hope. And therefore, I can engage in this danger because it's not really dangerous for me. (laughs) There's no risk. You're going to do harm to this body? So what? That's not the worst thing you can do to me. It might be the best you can do to me. Yeah, some of you are just, you know, oh, please. <laughs> and so we can place ourselves in that place of danger. We can go out in front of, in front of tanks and in front of machetes alike, and we can go there and declare Christ with a grin on our face, knowing that the worst they can do to us is destroy this flesh, and which is really, ultimately, because we really, really believe in the resurrection, the best they can do to us. So I can engage in dangerous activity that the world says is foolhardy because I believe in the resurrection. I have a powerful God who has secured me for me a future that is infinitely better than this. And God has a job for me to do here, and I will do that as long as He gives me breath to do so. Um, but this is not really my goal, is to have a comfortable, successful life here. Why? Because the resurrection is real and powerful, and I really, really do believe in it. Now, I wish I could say that I was willing to endanger myself for, or have lots of experience in that regard. I frankly don't. I know some of you think I take some high risks on some things. Um, and, and risk is, is measured, you know. It, it varies. Um, when we moved down here to southwest Albuquerque from Rio Rancho, I had a Rio Rancho City Councilman um, pull me aside and say, what are you doing? Do you not know what that part of town is like? (laughs) And his warning to me was, you have to think about your family. And you should not be taken down into that war zone. That's back when Westgate was really the gang. It still is, but... It was gang war zone. It's really moved more over to the southeast. But what are you doing? And, and to him, I was taking extraordinary risks moving down here to southwest to Albuquerque, to Westgate area. Um, I didn't see it that way. I was like, well, you know, you got to go where the sinners are. And he goes, well, I guess you got more going for you than most. So he acknowledges that I was at least serving the Lord. That I had some hedge of protection around me. But really, even if it cost me my life to come here, so what? I really believe in the resurrection. And it's not in this life that I have hope. Because if all I have is hope in this life, didn't Paul just say, um, we are pitiable, most pitiable. So what is it that that 
makes the Christian go out there and engage the world and doesn't worry about losing a job or losing relationships or losing his health or losing his very life? Why are we able to jeopardize it all? Because we really do believe in the resurrection and we really really know that there's a future for us in Christ's presence once I am finished in this world with this body. And so all this evidence comes to us and, and, it, and it's evidenced by our willingness to endanger even our very lives for the work of Christ. Verse 31, he goes on and he's already... And we're going to see more of this in 2 Corinthians when we get to there. And yes, we are going to do 2 Corinthians right after 1 Corinthians. This idea of his boasting that he has, um, that he tries to relate not to himself, but really to Christ, that anything that he boasts of, he really has to give the, the honor and the glory of that, any boast that he has upon Christ because of the extent of God's grace in his life. But he does want to affirm something in that, affirmation, he says, is a kind of boast. But he says, listen, I die daily. I'm ready every day to check out of here. I am dead to myself. And on your behalf, I'm willing to face death every day. Because death has no place over me. It has no authority. It has no control. It has no power. I have no fear of this. Why? Because I really, really believe in the resurrection. And so I die daily. I mean, you start counting it up, but he's going to do that in other passages of Scripture. He's going to start counting them up and talk about getting snake bit and, and half drowned in the ocean and, and stoned to half, as far as everybody's concerned, he's stoned to death, throw him out in the garbage heap. I mean, this man was living this. He's going to talk about in human terms as an example and that in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me? If there is no resurrection, why would I go out there and do this? Why would you do that? Why would you risk your life for something like that if there is no resurrection? It's foolishness. But with the power of the resurrection, you could even say be willing to face down the wild beasts in Ephesus. And there's no reference that we find that Paul actually did fight beasts in Ephesus unless he's referring to the people that he had to confront in Ephesus. And some have said that in the manner of men that he was referring to to man-beasts, animalistic men who were just attacking him. Um, He's willing to face death. He's willing to face those kinds of perils because he has more. He has more to live for than this temporal life. He has more to live for than his children. He has more to live for than his family. He has more to live for than his job. He has more to live for than his possessions. He has more to live for. He's living for an eternity. And death is a hiccup in that pursuit. It's crossing a doorway 
into his real purpose to live the kingdom of God. You can only live like that with, with boldness and confidence if you really, really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that that resurrection is ours when we place our trust and faith in Him. Secondly, that's the first evidence of the power of the resurrection. Secondly, there's yet another evidence. When we really, really believe in the resurrection. Verse 33 and 34 say, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. If we really, really believe in the resurrection and the power of Jesus Christ in it, it will transform our lives today and we will be sensitive, overly sensitive even, to the need for righteousness to be in my life and for the need for sin to be expunged from my practice. As a child, I was often confronted with the idea that God is watching you. And so you should live a certain way because God is watching you. I'm not always, my parents would say, we're not always watching, but God's always watching you. I'm always like, man, he's watching me. Turn off the light. He's still watching me. That works okay. There comes a point as an adult that we get in the patterns and habits of sin and we stop thinking God's really watching us. But here's what the resurrection does. When we really, really believe in the resurrection, we suddenly realize I have to answer on that day for every day of my life. I have to answer to an all-knowing God for this life. And if you really, really believe in the resurrection, then what you do today matters more because of how it's going to be treated in eternity. This isn't just about avoiding sin. It's about being awoken to righteousness. That when you stand before God in that great audit that we've used that term before, when your life is audited there before God and the records are there and available. And yes, your sin will be separated from you as far as the east is from the west by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we're not really looking at sin, we're looking at all the rest. We're looking at the rest of your life, the non-sin. You might say, well, what's not sin is righteousness wrong. Not true. For among the things that are represented in your life by not sin, you have things that are wood, hay, and stubble, and you have other things that are gold, silver, and precious stones. Gems. 
When we realize that there, we really, really believe in a resurrection and in that day of the judgment seat of Christ, and we, and we acknowledge that fact that I am investing, this is a day of investment into that day. And that I am either setting aside gold, silver, and precious stones, or I'm just stockpiling wood, hay, and stubble to be burned on that day and have no eternal value to them. And I need to start making these priorities in my life that I need to invest myself in things that have eternal dividends and disinvest myself in these things that have no value in eternity. I'll pour my energies and my resources and my life into what is really righteousness. There are many things you can be involved in you might be able to stand back and say, well, that's not really sin, but the question really is, is it righteousness? And when a Christian really, really believes in the resurrection, when they really come to it, when they grasp hold of its power and its, and its effect, they start to look at their life and their priority systems change dramatically, and suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, righteousness isn't just the lack of sin. Righteousness is the radical adherence to the will of God. I want what God wants. This is going to consume me now. And it needs to be awoken. And let me share with you what keeps you from being awoken to righteousness. Evil company. Evil company. Says corrupts good habits. We can teach you and train you and, and if you grew up in a Christian home, you were given some guidance on how to live godly and righteously in this present world looking for that blessed hope. Remember that passage? If you see the connection between living righteously and the blessed hope, if you're looking there, righteousness is going to be something you're going to be alert to and awakened to. But you see, while we can be trained in righteousness and we really kind of know what the Bible teaches, um, there's that bad company. Now, the first thing that comes to our minds with bad company is our friends. And that when we pick friends that aren't godly or that aren't interested in pleasing God, that they can corrupt us and they can, they can actually move us into uh, not only not doing righteousness, um, that's the first step, by the way, it isn't to just get you into wholesale sin, it's to get you not being righteous. You don't really have to do that. And then the next step after that is to lead you into sin. So we often think of those friendships, but I want to share with you that evil company, that term, has a much wider, broader use. And yes, it can even refer to family members. They are, after all, those that you spend a majority of time with for most of us. And if that is 
our regular contact and they are evil, yes, they will corrupt you. And I say, how can I reach them? but yet not have them be my company. The idea here is not that they visit. That's not the we think of I'm having company over as a visitor. Um, but the word really is about those that you are going to spend a lot of time with, that they are in your company, that they are, that they are those that are in your circle of influence, those that you have brought around you and, and uh, that you cherish those relationships and that you invest in them and and we find that when we invest ourselves in evil relationships relations with evil people that they with the idea that we're going to reach them by befriending them and deeper and deeper levels what the bible says is that no what happens is going to corrupt you it's going to corrupt your thinking about what is righteous and what is sin and what I need to be driving for? What, are, what is the object of my life in terms of what I'm striving after? But I want to even widen this word even further and I want to share with you that for most of you, I would contend that you spend more time in the company of some of the most evil people alive than you do in the company of real people. Between the our media, our entertainment, our music, and our favorite TV shows, brethren, we are investing heavily in evil company. And they define us more and more. And do not be deceived. The world would like to have you believe that they have no influence really. But the Bible says differently. It says that evil company corrupts good habits. The idea that somehow it's not going to influence you, it's not going to affect you, you are simply deceiving yourself. You're being, you're tricking yourself. Ultimately, every believer, because they are filled with the Holy Spirit, knows, truly does know. And this claim to ignorance, I didn't know, is nonsense. We know that we are called to righteousness. We know that we are called to invest in things that please God. We know. But we have surrounded ourselves with an evil company that affirms us in whatever decision we make to serve ourselves. They will affirm again and again every time you walk away from what is truly righteous. And so the world will come to you and say, well, that's okay. You're okay. But I want you to think very carefully about what sorts of things the world says you're okay, I'm okay about. And once you understand how far out there they are in their extremity, maybe we'll start to take a little more concern about their influence over us in this 
intermediate area of what is not righteousness. But maybe not sin. What's wood, hay, and stubble? What is just vanity that we engage in that has no eternal value? You see, the world says it's okay, you're okay, um, sleep with whoever you like, of whatever gender you like, um, or whatever species you like, um, it's okay. You're okay, I'm okay. It's okay. And we'll make fun of it occasionally, but we won't condemn it ever. Now, if the world's willing to say that, it's okay to murder people, providing they're the right kind of people. And if you think that genocide is only something that happens in Germany, you're wrong. That only Muslims participate in it, you're wrong. We're actively engaging it in this country. We're probably the most efficient at it. We are much more efficient at it than the Germans ever were um, in the slaughter of people. We just isolate them and call them not people. That's all they did about the Jews in Germany. Just call them not people. And then it's okay to slaughter them. It's what every Muslim calls a Jew, a non-person. It's okay to slaughter them. In fact, you get rewarded for it. And so the world is over here saying all these things are okay. It's acceptable. We won't judge you over it. And somehow you think that you can keep company with those people and not let it influence you that somehow they're not going to draw you away from gold, silver, and precious stones in God's sight to wood, hay, and stubble? That is... The idea that they will not attract you to that and away from what's godly is foolishness. It's stupidity is what it really is. You're letting yourself be deceived by yourself. That if we keep company with them over there, those seeds will be brought into our minds and into our hearts and it will separate us from God's design and we will invest ourselves in all of this junk that one day is just going to be burned up and we're going to stand before God empty-handed and naked and ashamed. Because we did nothing for forever that we claim to believe in back here. Log the hours. Log them. Get your day timer out Log your hours. You tell me how much time you're investing in eternity. I look at mine and I'm ashamed. Oh, that we would be careful with our company. I've been a pastor for over 20 years. Now, that's a frightening thought. Which means that I've had young people that are now not young people at all. They're in their 30s, pushing 40. And I have watched it consistently happen. They had good habits. Parents got them in church. They read their Bibles. They came to Sunday school. Taught them. Trained them. (laughs) 
But none of that could stand against evil company that they chose to invest in in their life. And truly, we need an awakening in our lives to what righteousness really is. Because he who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so far I've allowed for this middle ground of wood, hay, and stubble. But to me, much of that middle ground is sin. Because I know what I should be doing. I know what I should be investing in. I know where I should spend my time and my energies. I know what I should be doing. When I don't do what I know I should be doing, to me that is sin. We claim to have a knowledge of God. We claim to believe in the resurrection. (laughs) If we really, really did believe that. If we really, truly do have a knowledge of who God is and what this is all about, we would be very careful in the influences we allow into our lives and those that we love. It is certain that the company we are keeping on the internet, on the TV, on the radio, in our music, as well as in our friendships and families, more often than not, leads us to corruption and not to righteousness. We are not called to go live as hermits somewhere on a mountainside to try to avoid sin. This is why the Bible says that we are to regularly gather together with God's people to keep company with the saints, holy ones. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why? Because there's great danger there. Because you will keep company with someone, with some influence. If you're not keeping company with God's people, if you're not keeping company with God's Word, if you are not keeping company with righteousness, then you are being corrupted day by day. And it will not be surprising that somehow even your religious habits begin to wane. See, some people are going to church just by religious habit. Some people are praying just by religious habit. We always pray before you eat. Some people even read their Bible out of religious habit. Not really gaining anything really from it. An evil company will corrupt those habits. They are corrupting them and making them of no value. Literally, We have fallen asleep. They've put us to sleep. And we're at the point now that we don't even recognize righteousness when it slaps us across the face. And we are no different than the Corinthians in that respect. 
And Paul says, this is your shame. This is the shame of the church. This is our shame. That we don't even really know what righteousness really, really is. That we think that this stuff that God calls wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned up. That doing this is, is righteousness. And God has a whole another definition. And we don't know it because we don't know His Word. And when we do read His Word, we're sure that He doesn't mean that. You can't mean that. There's, let me find some commentary. There's got to be some softening of this. And we have softened away the books of First and Second Corinthians to the point that most of our churches don't adhere to any of it. We need to be woken up. And when Paul says, awake to righteousness, it's going to require some radical revisions in our life. To say, listen, whoa, let me think about what, where I'm spending my time. Let me see who is my company. Who are the influences around me? Who am I spending my attentions upon? Who is it that's influencing me? Who is it that I am able to quote freely and willingly and ably without even a second thought? Can I quote God's Word the way I quote lines out of my favorite movie? Do they come to me that quickly? If not, I know who your company is. And it's evil. Let's take great care. And wake up. We're sleeping. We're dozing at the wheel. And we're thinking that we are pleasing God all the time. We are not really living as though we believe in the resurrection. So we have these two instructions, these two prongs, evidence, that you really, really believe in the resurrection. You will engage yourself in the work of the kingdom of God at any cost and at every cost. And secondly, you will wake up to righteousness and realize one day you will answer for every day before a holy, holy, holy God. Let's pray.